afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the Institute for Government. My name is Hannah White. I'm Deputy Director here, and I'm very pleased to welcome you here for our latest <coughs> interesting public event. So as the Conservative leadership process reaches its denouement, um, we are hoping that Conservative MPs and Conservative members are reflecting on this question that we have before us, what makes a good Prime Minister, and thinking about the experience and the qualities and the support which a Prime Minister needs uh, to do their job effectively, and reflecting on that as they decide how to cast their votes. So we thought it would be a good opportunity to have a wider discussion about this topic, um, and as we wrote in a paper that we published last week uh, with some handy tips for anyone who's thinking of becoming Prime Minister, um, the job has a lot of different aspects and we're very lucky to have a fantastic panel here today who can talk uh, about this question from a number of different angles. Um, so, working from the far, far end uh, towards me, we have Baroness Kate Fall, who was Deputy Chief of Staff to David Cameron, both in opposition and then as Prime Minister. We have Sir Mark Lyle Grant, who was uh, a National Security Advisor between 2015 and 2017, um, following a distinguished career in the Foreign Office. Then we have uh, our very own Jill Rutter, um, who was an official in Number 10 and in the Treasury, uh, and is Programme Director here at the Institute, and one of the authors of uh, a very um, uh, important, excellent piece of work called Centre Forward, which examines the different arrangements that Prime Ministers use uh, in, in Number 10 to support them, what the key, those key functions are, why they're important, and the different ways in which you can organise them. So I'm sure Jill will be drawing on that today. Um, and then we have uh, Ian Martin, who is a uh, political commentator and, of course, Times columnist. So we're not going to have any pre-prepared statements. We're going to go straight into a question, because uh, questions and answers, I think, is uh, a, a lot to explore. We'll do about 30 minutes uh, with the panel, and then I'll open up to questions from the floor, so you'll be able to answer your questions. So the first thing I wanted to start with is a question about experience. We've seen the leadership candidates uh, trying to differentiate themselves from each other, I think, on the basis of experience, whether it's Jeremy Hunt talking about having run a small business, whether it's uh, the cabinet ministers trying to show that they, you know, they have the experience and gravitas in government to bring to the role, whether it's Rory Stewart trying to show that he's an outsider via Eton and Oxford and MI6. Um, so I wanted to ask the panel, um, perhaps we'll start with, with you, Kate, in, from what you've seen, what is really useful experience um, for the role? Uh, what have you seen that actually really is helpful when you're coming into, into the job for the first time? Well, the role of Prime Minister it, it, it's such a, it covers such a massive ground and so many different skills are needed and such a diverse range of skills that I think, in a way, experience for the job is, is a slightly strange thing to start with because you can be experienced and have run a department, run a party, um, know a bit about media, know a bit about security issues, um, but that might not prepare you for actually the multi-layered job itself. And I would say it's more about the attributes of the person. You know, do they have good judgment? Are they able to make a decision? You know, you're not going to always get the decision right, but your job as Prime Minister is to make that decision. Can you put a team around you and who trust you, who will work for you, whether they're on the civil service side or your political team. Um, you know, leadership matters, but leadership where? 
So, I mean, all these things, you, at the end of the day, people expect their Prime Minister to be competent, to run a competent number 10. And that means meetings, that means getting through your red boxes, that means chairing COBRA security meetings when you need be. So, to me, it's less about experience, it's more about the attributes. Actually, I would agree with that. I mean, I think it is useful to have some previous experience in senior ministerial positions, having sat in the cabinet, you, you get a better feel for the dynamics of the decision-making process. But we've had good prime ministers who haven't had that before. And I think personally, it's helpful to have some experience outside politics entirely. So I can see why the candidates are emphasizing that they've done different things, they've run a business, or they've walked across Afghanistan or whatever. Um, you know, because I do think that gives a little bit of color and a little bit of hinterland, which is useful when it comes to the difficult business of, of running the country. But Kate's absolutely right. It's about the personality and the attributes. And certainly, I would put taking decisions as extremely uh, important. Um, I did ask David Cameron once, how many decisions do you take a day? And he said, oh, I don't know, uh, about 20 to 30. And Ed Llewellyn said, uh, oh, I think it's a lot more than that. You know, I think it's probably 30 to 40. Anyway, whichever it is in whatever range, there are a wide number of decisions that have to be taken every day on a huge variety of subjects, often without the benefit of 100% information and time being of the essence in taking that decision. So I think the ability to take decisions, not necessarily too readily, but readily enough that things don't get blocked up, I would put pretty high up. Leadership, setting objectives, being able to implement and then taking advice, having the right people around you. Not just cabinet ministers, but the people in number 10, uh, I think are really important because you do rely on them increasingly as we find greater centralization of power in the politics of this country, the greater personalization of politics, which I think is a trend, probably an unhelpful trend, but a trend that's not going to be uh, changed. Uh, so a lot goes to the prime minister, more than perhaps should, but a lot of decisions have to be taken. Joe, do you agree with that? Uh, yes, I mean, I, I do agree with that. But I think it's quite interesting that Prime Minister, uh, sort of new entrants, expectations of what Prime Ministers do is coloured by where they've come from. So we have two basic recruitment routes to being Prime Minister. Uh, we may be about to experiment semi with a third. Uh, one is you come from being leadership leader of the opposition. Uh, that obviously gives you the experience of leading a party. I think marshalling the sort of party gives you some experience, albeit on the other side, the much easier side of Prime Minister's questions is that sort of regular routine and the sort of need to sort of manage the whole party. Uh, but you may not have any departmental experience. And David Cameron, Tony Blair, we had two Prime Ministers who had no, uh, no experience. David Cameron obviously had a bit of uh, departmental exposure through his role as a special advisor, but Tony Blair didn't even have that. Um, your alternative recruitment route is largely to be a relatively senior cabinet minister, uh, and I think that's quite an interesting route. Um, when Gordon Brown became prime minister, I think Gordon Brown uh, thought that being chancellor was very good preparation for being prime minister, because actually it's the second biggest job in government, and Gordon Brown probably thought when he was chancellor it was the biggest job in government, and actually that being prime minister was quite easy because Tony had done it and therefore it couldn't be that difficult, could it? I was quite shocked <laughs> when he discovered how different a job being Prime Minister was to being Chancellor, that particularly if you're Chancellor at a time when there isn't an economic crisis, you can basically 
hide away for quite a lot of the time, you have your one or two set piece events, you pick your agenda, you intervene when you want to. But actually in that sense, it's not actually a very demanding job. I thought, and now I'm going to admit that I think I was completely wrong, but I thought the Chancellor probably wasn't a great preparation, though it does help that you're steeped in the importance of the economy. We now have a Prime Minister uh, who has never done a job where she's been steeped in the importance of the economy, and I think that's shown quite a lot with Theresa May, who comes out of a very different tradition, a sort of secure crack tradition, a home office tradition. I thought that actually probably was quite a good preparation for being Prime Minister in the sense that it gave you, you know, events happening at you, uh, the need to deal with crises, which is one of the things that is a problem being Prime Minister, that you have to respond quickly and multitask in a way I think uh, Gordon Brown didn't have to do at the Treasury and even John Major didn't have to do at the Treasury with his very brief tenure as Foreign Secretary. I think the problem is that's quite a limited construction. We've seen in the European negotiations that the Prime Minister seemed to extrapolate from her experience of dealing with Europe as Home Secretary into a more general experience. So I think the, one of the key things about the experience is you have to leverage what experience you have, but also be very open to realising that, I think with Davison said on this morning's thing, that that experience doesn't stand you, doesn't prepare you completely for being Prime Minister, and you have to be open to the limitations of that experience as well. And Ian, from a sort of journalist perspective, yeah. you've seen various leaders come in. How yeah, well, journalists are always terrible at this because journal <laughs> journalists are always really tough on whoever is Prime Minister and then afterwards <laughs> say, well, you know, actually, they already had something. <laughs> um, which I think probably applies with Brown and, Brown and Cameron and most, uh, most people in my trade. I think that, I mean, the elephant in the room is that there are, we as a country are in the middle of choosing a Prime Minister for this very strange process. And I detect, I don't know whether in this room, but certainly out there, a lot of disquiet about how it's being done and a lot of disquiet about the quality uh, of the candidates. Personally, I think, I mean, the BBC messed up the format last night, but actually, I think, I don't think we should be so gloomy about it. On that stage with five people, there were at least four, maybe four and a half, who were, who could comfortably be prime ministers. Prime ministers. I think it's a shame that it was five men, but, um, that aside, it's a pretty good mix of the experience of life and of the major offices of state and of devolved institutions like London. So I, I, I pretty much, and you're going to ask me soon which of the four I think, but, anyway, <laughs> but let's leave it for there at the moment. I think that's it's not that bad a choice. I think the major flaw in the modern system, which is partly to do with the media, is longevity or the lack of it, is that careers are now too short. So if you think about it historically, where, how long many prime ministers had to serve and how many cycles of crisis and failure they had to go through be before they became prime minister. Macmillan's the best example, an MP for 29 years, career over nearly three times, um, only rescued by Churchill in the war, lost his seat at the end of the war, uh, regarded as a joke by many of his contemporaries and then emerges battle-hardened as really a rather brilliant Prime Minister. Churchill's another good example, that if you, if you want people to be there in a moment of national crisis like this, they shouldn't resign their seats when they experience that first defeat or cycle of uh, despair. If Jim Callaghan had given up 
after in place of strife, then I think Britain would have been deprived of someone who was a really serious public servant, that he was, you didn't necessarily rescue his premiership, but you then had a serious person as prime minister. So I think we, uh, we expect them to be, to give up too young and uh, to go off and make money afterwards when I think I would rather see them there in their 50s and 60s and we would all benefit from their experience. Can I mean, Just a couple of things. First of all, I mean, I agree with you, but I think the press is part of the reason why lots of people feel they do need to leave Parliament after being um, very senior, because the, the, everyone's watching what they're doing, how much they're earning, think it's an outrage, whatever. I, I agree. I think but Parliament would benefit from people staying for longer. That experience, that coming in and out of office, I think would be a good thing, but I think that needs to be actually an approach that holistically, as a country, we think is a good thing. And just to pick up a couple of the other points, I thought something that emerged was about coming into government from opposition as opposed from what we're seeing now, which is you know years on from a, con a conservative coalition, conservative. I mean, I think in opposition, the great advantage is you know you run your party, you're an influencer, really. You have no real power other than that. And, and the, Mark, to your point about the personification, it, the main person that leads that charge is the leader of the opposition. The other politicians around that person tend to be less well-known. It's just how, in a way, the media works. So you, you feel like very much that the top of the gang. After you know, years in government, your, your ministers, your secretary of state, become much bigger political figures in their own right. So you get a very different sense, a very different competition. Mm -hmm. I agree. I thought you know, there were people on that stage last night were, were decent people, all of whom you know, I think did you know, fairly well. I don't agree with all their politics, but I thought it was, it was pretty good. But I think that the problem that they are going to face is they are playing for one competition and they're going to have to make a very quick pivot into one of the most serious mm. problems our mm. nation's faced for a long time. And you don't want to go straight into looking like you haven't fully examined the issues of the day because you've been, you know, slightly, let's talk about that later. Because your leadership, your, your, the trust in you could go quite quickly and your administration and your premiership will, might look a bit wobbly quite, you know, early on. Just, and I just w do come in, yeah. and I also was just going to ask you to wrap into your answer. The point about, so, so Kate's talked about how the people around you change in stature, mm -hmm. but I think there's also a point, isn't there, about how prime ministers change during their premiership and go through a sort of sure. cycle in what they want to be doing, and I wondered if you could reflect on that. Yeah, no, happy to mention that, but I wanted to pick up on Ian's point about the historical analogy, I think is, is extremely important, because it's the price of mm -hmm. failure British politics is much higher than it is, say, in France, or it is in the United States, or it was in this country, you know, 70 years ago. Winston Churchill would not have been a wartime leader had he paid the price of his failures uh, earlier on, as modern politicians do. Uh, at one point in my Foreign Office career, I was asked to find out why should we be more French in our foreign policy. And the conclusion of the study that I did is, yes, it would be in our national interest to be more French, but it was politically, constitutionally impossible for us to be more French because of our system of government. Mm -hmm. One of the reasons for that is the price of failure, uh, the price exacted by Parliament and the price exacted, obviously, by the press. So as soon as you've lost an election, you are gone. I remember I was in Paris when Margaret Thatcher uh, fell, and all my uh, French counterparts would say, well, she'll come back, or she'll come back. <laughs> and I would say, it's completely different. You know, Mitterrand failed three times before he became 
president, just doesn't happen in a political system. Once you're gone, you, you're gone. Mm. Same with you know, David Miliband. Many other people say, mm. when's he coming back? Doesn't happen in our system. I think that's a problem. On the cycle, sorry, uh, quickly, um, Hannah. What, what I've experienced, and this is very much from a civil service perspective, is that all prime ministers come in with a view that they're going to focus on the most important issue, whether that's the economy normally, and absolutely focus on that. And over time, the longer they become prime minister, the more interested they get in foreign and security policy in particular. They get rather bored with the difficult issues, and it's all very tricky and mundane after a while, whereas they get on the world stage and they meet all the world leaders and they get more and more interested the other thing that happens is that you get greater centralization. So every prime minister comes in saying, I'm going to trust my cabinet ministers, I'm going to appoint people, and they're going to get on with the job. But that lasts about 18 months, two years in my experience. There's a crisis in the health service or a problem in transport, and it gets up to the center. And once it moves to the center, it stays at the center. And so over time, you get a prime minister and his, uh, obviously, advisors and senior civil servants in number 10, taking a very high percentage uh, of the decisions, which is why you know, taking decisions become so important. Gilda, you, you look like I was just going to say that the, the thought I failed to complete was it's quite interesting. If you look at the US, they have uh, obviously an exceptional president at the moment in the sense that he's never held any sort of elected office. But you have quite an interesting double route there, either from someone with predominantly congressional experience or someone who's coming in from being governor of a state and maybe even, depending where the Democrats go, being mayor of a town in Indiana, who knows. But it's quite interesting to the extent to which being a sort of executive running something is a pre better preparation than being a sort of legislative. Obviously, the demarcation is different in the US because the legislators don't hold cabinet secretary positions. But I think one of the really interesting questions, if Boris Johnson becomes prime minister, is how good an experience is running a big city, and you can imagine people like Andy Burnham, Sadiq Khan, all these people, others say, is that really a new route that we are opening up into the top job? And actually, does the experience of having to deal with lots of issues, take decisions, stuff like that, across a whole wide range of portfolios, and having to construct your team around you, which I think is very interesting, because Ian wrote in the Times about, you know, could Boris replicate how he'd run London if he became Prime Minister? I think that's really interesting. Are we opening up another route? And does, you know, I mean, it'd be very difficult to divorce from the personality, but I think it's quite interesting that we're now creating other centres of power and potentially other routes than our one that you turn up in Parliament, spend, it used to be a long time, now a relatively short time, you convince enough of your colleagues to elect you to run your party and then suddenly, you know, hey, press your Prime Minister. But the other, uh, one of the cu curious things about Boris is that, so we know who his team is now, but it's a team that's very narrowly focused on getting sufficient votes mm. to get him through to the second round. So it's essentially a handful of MPs, mm. plus um, James Wharton, mm. plus then Linton and a few people around Linton who are not directly in there but are consulting, and that's it. But that's not the basis on which to construct mm. a team in government or a team in number 10. So if you think of Cameron, Cameron had a really well-built, constructed operation around him, which had been in place for years. Um, so did so did Blair, mm. and there was an operation to that could land in number in, in, in number ten. Mm. I'm I genuinely don't don't know, and having asked people mm. around Boris, I don't know who those people will be with Boris. It might happen quite suddenly, quite spontaneously, mm. 
based on his discussions with the cabinet secretary mm -hmm. and maybe David Cameron and a few others, but he'll have to build that very, very quickly. I mean, who will his chief of staff be? Um, I mean, Ed Lister, Ed Lister has ruled himself out. <laughs> That's a shame. Um, I, I think it's absolutely right. I mean, we, the, the opposition years did give us time mm. to put together, a, I think, very exceptional, the people I work with, I'm proud of, and um, they, we were close, and sometimes we were criticised for being too close, but in the end of the day, you have to trust the people you work with. You have to be able to shut the door and really argue something out and know it won't leak. Now, a leaky number 10 is an unhappy number 10, um, and, and it tends, that tends to be the sort of music that comes mm. out of that. Um, and so I think actually trust is very important for the central government. And um, I would add that we didn't just bring a team, we also brought a way of doing things. So um, some of the sort of functional governance, like the 8.30 meeting and four o'clock, which our, our successors kept in place, you know, was a way of saying, you know, there are lots of issues that cross your desk in a day at number 10, and Mark just mentioned that. And you can't, if you, if you reconvene everyone every time, you're never going to get through them all. So having, you know, um, bookmarking the day between an 8.30 when slightly more media um, focused and the four o'clock smaller group more strategic was also a very, very good way of doing things. We started straight off. And the only other thing I was just going to add is, in the end, you know, at, at, at number 10, you have to do, you know, essentially govern the country. You have to firefight and you have to strategize mm. all at one go. And a, a really well-managed team will find time for that, no matter how difficult, no matter whether you're in. Otherwise, what happens is you suddenly have spent, you know, we've seen this a bit with, with, with Mrs. May. Um, she talked about um, lots of things when she came in on sort of life chances agenda and then the fog of Brexit, which is a very difficult issue, took over. And then in her last few weeks, she's, she's sort of come back to this, but actually, if she'd maybe had um, a stronger team or policy team in number 10, they might have had a better chance of running a few things like that at the same time. And I think there's another interesting issue, isn't there, about how the team that the Prime Minister coming in brings with them fits then with the civil servants and the officials who are there in number 10 who've been, who moved seamlessly from, moving, from working with their predecessor to working with them, and how that, that works out. I don't know if you can reflect, Jill, at all on, on how, how it feels as an official within Number 10. Well, I joined Number 10, I joined the policy unit very bizarrely, uh, and not what I wanted to do at all, um, after the 92 election. So John Major was already there, but I saw sort of John Major move out of the Treasury into Number 10. And then there was much less of a sense that you had a big personal team as Prime Minister, and the Prime Minister had her sort of policy unit, uh, Margaret Thatcher. So actually one of the things that's quite noticeable was that John Major made one or two key appointments when he moved across, but basically continued much of the number 10 operation. He didn't move lots of people out of the policy unit. He brought Gus O'Donnell over, he'd been his press secretary at the Treasury, to replace Bernard Ingham, who was very obviously a Margaret Thatcher character. Uh, so he took Gus across, uh, who already worked for him, but was a Treasury official, uh, as we know, went on to be cabinet secretary. Um, he kept the private office. He kept most of the policy unit. He appointed his own head of the policy unit in terms of Sarah Hogg. <coughs> but people moved down to the policy unit a bit more gradually. Uh, he even kept uh, Charles Powell on as foreign affairs advisor, although he was extraordinarily closely identified with Margaret Thatcher, and then you know, eventually that changed. And uh, Stephen Wall, I think, took over. So it's a sort of gradual process of change. Whereas now, I think if you contrast that, quite interesting, with the Gordon Brown takeover of Tony Blair. They went for much more of a sort of scorched earth policy, 
that you know if you work for Tony, you clearly were disqualified. The Chancellor actually built up quite a big team of special advisors in the Treasury by getting around the rules by having this thing called the Council of Economic Advisors, also known as having loads more special advisors uh, <laughs> in breach of all the rules about that. Uh, so you did have people to move in, but I thought it was quite interesting that they clearly didn't see value in continuity or handover. It was defining yourself against your predecessor rather than doing those things. I mean, John Major defined himself in a sense, um, saying it's very nervous with Robin Butler in the front row. Uh, I mean, John Major promised a change of style uh, not necessarily a big change of personnel. But I always felt, uh, for example, in the policy unit, that it wasn't at all clear to me that John Major had paid nearly enough attention to the extent to which the people he appointed to his policy unit actually agreed with what he wanted to do. I mean, they seemed to me to come from a very different conservative tradition to John Major's. They were you know, mostly what you would call Thatcherites. Um, and I didn't think John Major, as a result of that, necessarily got the sort of policy ideas flowing from the policy unit that he might have chosen had he paid a bit more time and attention to that. But it was uh, so much time was spent firefighting over Maastricht, he didn't have that much time for <laughs> staff over it. I don't know if I, Mark or Kate yeah, want to come I, I, I mean, the first thing I'd say is that civil servants want to be led by there's a sort of myth around the civil service has its own policy, and it's completely untrue. You know, clear leadership, setting out objectives, saying the direction of travel the government wants to go in, the civil service, that's what they want. What they hate is weak leadership and argumentation and, you know, chaos at, at the top. I think a successful prime minister will get a right balance between their personal advisors or political advisors, the chief of staff, etc. that Kate's job was mm -hmm. doing, and then the senior officials mm -hmm. who are civil service officials. And that includes obviously the cabinet secretary, the national security advisor, and uh, a, a number of others. And I think it's really important to maintain that distinction. And one of the reasons why the cabinet secretary sits, you know, not in number 10, but, you know, through the invisible door, as it were, uh, in the cabinet office is important because your job as a civil servant is to speak truth to power, however uncomfortable that is. And it's really important that ministers and their political entourage are willing to listen to that advice and accept that expert advice as being impartial and not biased. And then if the political decision goes a different way, then of course the civil servant falls into line and you implement it. And what we've seen is a little bit too much in the past a blurring between the roles where very senior civil servants become politicized. I mean, you could argue Charles Bowles and people like that fell into that category, but maybe not. Um, and you find uh, senior officials being excluded from key decision making. And I think that leads to disaster. And we saw a bit of that under Tony Blair, for instance. I mean, I just say, oh, oh come on. No, so I was just going to say that highlights the, something we should really talk about, which is the cabinet secretary, because there's all sorts of wild talk from Team Boris mm. and some of Boris's uh, MADA supporters who want the cabinet secretary fired um, as the first act in number 10, which is obviously completely insane. And it's about the, the last thing you want is the, the, the person who, sh who, sh who welcomes the prime minister in, talks uh, him through the nuclear, <coughs> nuclear deterrent, and is then handed his P45, which is <laughs> not a sensible way to proceed. But there is a, clearly there will have to be a change at some point and there are discussions 
about how that might be facilitated and managed. But if it is Boris, he's going to, he will be, he'd be, it'd be very, very unwise if he um, listens to some of his wilder supporters. I don't think he will. I think he'll be, I think he'll probably phone David Cameron on the way back from the palace and say, now look, Dave, you've done this mm -hmm. thing. It's all seems very, very complicated. What do you recommend? <laughs> and I suspect, suspect Cameron will say, the guy that welcomes you at the front door, stick to him like glue. He is the person who's going to walk you through everything, and he is about to become your best best friend. Uh, and I think Boris will probably take that advice. But we'll um, see. I hope do you think so. that's what I mean, Cameron I, will say? <laughs> we were you know, very fortunate to have a very good relationship with our officials at, at Number 10. We had you know, some of the best people I've worked with, um, Jeremy Hayward, who's sadly no longer with us, was the principal private secretary, one of the men standing at the door when we came in, and then he went um, through the, the, the door to be mm. cabinet secretary. But I, I, I think that um, Mark's point is right. You know, it's very important. You know what you're doing mm. or your role is, and, and if, if you, you, you work better like that together. And obviously, back to my, you know, if you, if you do your 24-7, your you know, governing and your strategy, of course, when you're coming into an election or ahead of a party conference, the whole thing becomes more political and you're going to be spending more time thinking about that sort of thing. And that obviously isn't the role for the civil service. But on the whole, if you're clear about what you're trying to do, everyone know, knows their rules, it should really operate well. And, and rightly, as you say, one of the key, key attributes of a prime minister is to be able to listen to advice and actually really think about, you know, and, and sometimes, God forbid, actually decide you can't go ahead with a policy. I mean, there, there were times when, however uncomfortable, um, you realise that you've come up with um, an idea that just isn't going to fly. Whether or not you still think it's a good idea, you have, you know, Parliament to deal with, you have, you know, press saying it's bad, whatever it is, your civil service, actually when it came down to it, this implementation, this idea, we had a problem over some of the health policies, as you know, with Andrew Lansley in the beginning when we sort of stopped and paused and thought, mm, have we got this right? Uh, personally, I think it's very important that you do, you do have the confidence sometimes to stop and reflect and... Listen. The one other thing I'd just say about um, the Cabinet Secretary at the moment is, and I'm sure that David Cameron might say this were he to receive that mm. phone call, is, I mean, my personal view is I think the National Security Advisor role, which was created under David Cameron, which Mark did extremely well, was a really, really good new, um, new initiative. The Council brought a sort of holistic approach to those foreign policy security issues. And I, I think that although um, I don't know Mark that well myself, he's a very capable, excellent person who probably should have one person do one role and another person doing the other one. And we have alluded, I think we've done very well actually to get this far in the discussion without mentioning the B word. Um, but <laughs> Boris or Brexit? <laughs> no. So on day two, Boris is going to emerge having had a long short, uh, chat with Mark Sedwell and Boris is going to emerge and say, Look, I've, it's, it's been explained to me. This is really complicated. <laughs> <laughs> we can do this. Let's see. Um, I mean, we've talked about John Major and how his, you know, Maastricht was, uh, you know, a, a, a pervading issue, and the wish of prime ministers perhaps coming in to to think about domestic policies and the focus. But obviously, we're in a very particular uh, context now. Um, what do you think of the? specific challenges that a new Prime Minister coming in now is going to have to face? Well, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's going to all, initially, barring some uh, foreign policy emergency, and there are several things happening in the background that could be the surprise mm -hmm. of the summer, um, what's happening with Iran, and t 
tensions with China. Um, so that's, there's that, but it's obviously all about Brexit. And one of the things that's worrying me about it is that I can't, it, as I said earlier, I can't get a sense of where the Boris team is or what it is or who it is and where operational responsibility is going to lie. And who are the people with Boris when he's having the conversation with the senior officials? And when he says, I want to reset Brexit policy, what does that mean? Because he is, he's won, if he wins the leadership race, he has won having convinced Marc Francois and Andrew Bridgen at one extreme, and Damien Collins, and uh, Sir Michael Fallon, and Matt Hancock, that range of people all think that something magical and Boris-like is going to happen. Now, that's not impossible. It sometimes happens in international affairs. The other side makes a mistake or there's a, a compromise that no one spots. I personally, I'm very skeptical about that. But somehow, between the uh, end of July and early September when Parliament comes back, something is going to have to be mapped out and a new strategy designed. And I, I, despite having listened to the various contenders and listened to Boris closely and talked to some of his MPs supporting him, I'm sorry to say, none the wiser. I really, I know, I have a, a sense that they're going to try and force things with Parliament to try and present it as a choice between no deal and revoke. So I think they have some idea of speeding up the, vote, the voting process. Uh, I think they're probably heading for an accidental general election. Um, but in terms of the mechanics of renegotiating with Brussels, pass. Sorry to be, sorry to be so and, and Jill, as we've, we've said in various contexts, timing is very tight. Timing is very tight, but I think you know, the first, first act uh, after being greeted by your new cabinet secretary and being given the tour of number 10 if you need it or whatever, <laughs> being told about your nuclear responsibilities, is to construct your cabinet. And I think uh, that's clearly a really important thing any prime minister set the sort of tone of what they want. There's some quite big strategic decisions about who you put where. I mean, we, uh, as you all remember, Hannah, we were we said uh, what turned out to be on the day Andrea Leadston withdrew. Uh, I was over in the cabinet office giving the then cabinet office minister Lord Bridges our report, saying don't create a dedicated department for exiting the EU. Uh, two days later, Dexu was created. The prime minister created instantly the Department for International Trade, um, without seemingly people in number 10 to realize that that in, gave a signal to the outside world that that meant the UK was forging an independent trade policy and going to therefore leave the EU customs union. So people who were uh, claim they were in number 10 with her say that they hadn't really intended that to imply that they were definitely leaving the customs union then, but that was <laughs> how it was read. So I think there's some really interesting things for the Prime Minister to actually, you know, going to hit the ground running to, to come and think about. I mean, you know, am I going to do this myself? Do I have a Brexit secretary who looks like the current sort of Brexit secretary? Or do I bring that into the Cabinet Office with a sort of, you know, my own version of David Liddington, if that's what it looks like? I mean, maybe that's a better version. I think one of the things that you clearly need uh, when you're trying to run a minority government is extraordinarily good business managers. And I don't think that necessarily people have thought enough about those jobs which don't seem to matter that much, and you might hide that sort of a person who did slightly better than you expected in the leadership poll or gave you support, uh, you know, you give that to them because it doesn't matter that much, etc. 
but you need to think which jobs really matter for me. And you need to think, if I am going to have to spend a lot of my time, and when, even when I was in number 10, uh, we doing the domestic policy stuff, kept on saying, why on earth does the Foreign Office get so much of the Prime Minister's time? Because you're bombarded in number 10 by the Prime Minister must see this person who, from a country that he couldn't find on a map, who is visiting. You think, can't they just see the Foreign Secretary? No, he's head of state, he's the head of the government, so he's got to see the Prime Minister. The amount of time for really sort of forging ahead with your own priorities is much more limited than you think. And therefore, it's quite critical. The things that you think are going to define what you're doing, and if you'd like uh, where you might be fighting that surprise election that could be on you at any time, when you're running a minority government, you have to generally be in quite general electiony mode. You don't have the luxury of thinking you've got a five-year glide path. Then I think you need to think, who I'm going to put in those critical high-profile things, who will basically make a lot of the decisions that I want made for me, so I am not constantly having to second-guess. When I was at number 10, I shadowed um, health. And Virginia Bottomley, who was then the health secretary, used to come and complain. She would come, and I'd go to meetings, and she'd say, Gilda, why do I never get to see the Prime Minister? Why don't I get to see the Prime Minister? John Patton sees the Prime Minister all the time, and I don't get any, any look in with the Prime Minister. He was Education Secretary. He said, you know, Secretary said, that's because John Major thinks John Patton's doing a really not very good job, and he needs <laughs> to be sort of seeing him all the time, because he's very worried about <laughs> where we are in education. And he thinks you're doing an absolutely fantastic job <laughs> of health, which is why he doesn't feel the need to check in with you very often, so just keep on doing it, and it's all very good, <laughs> stuff like that. So I think it's quite important to think about who those people are, you know, what they're doing, and actually you know, make sure that they and you are on the same page as to what you want them to do with that job. We're very, very weak at setting agendas. And if you come in of this, you'll come in from a few slightly random promises you've made during the course of leadership debates or hustings, but you don't come in with anything as developed as a manifesto that's been through you know, that oral programme for government as Kate inherited when she came in having negotiated with Liberal Democrats. I was, I was just going to add to that. I mean, you know, what we haven't seen um, much of it is, you know, what, what, what's the compelling idea? What, what's the purpose um, of, of the future leader? I mean, we, the early sort of Cameron opposition years, uh, we talked a lot about life chances. Then the financial crisis came along and that swept that in a way from, from our priority list for the time being. But what, what kept the coalition government, the glue of the coalition government, was, was um, dealing with the, 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 the recession, was, in, if you like, austerity. That, that really gave a solidarity of purpose to that, that government for the, for the whole time. And I think that it's very important in government to be creative politically, to have ideas, to keep um, that driving. And we were lucky in the sense that you, you mentioned the Chancellor's job at the beginning. I mean, our Chancellor was, in a way, he, his office, he made the creative engine room of the Cameron. It was very much a, a double act, and, and his people were very good at coming up with lots of ideas and keeping um, the show on the road. And the only other thing I just wanted to add is um, I met um, Valerie Jarrett for the first time at the beginning of the week. She's over sort of um, selling her book, and she's fascinating. And one of the things we both agreed with was, you know, the Prime Minister's schedule. The only other person I ever met who really understood that the diary was important because it's what the Prime Minister did <laughs> was Jeremy Hayward. Mm. 
literally. I mean, he, he was absolutely brilliant at sitting down and saying, what are we prior... He, he didn't say, what's the diary for next week? He said to the nice diary secretaries, he said, what's the Prime Minister prioritising next week? And I think lots of people make the mistake of allowing that to be a lesser role, to be, oh dear, you know, the diary owns the person rather than the other way around. And it's, it, that is part of just a good... A good ship at number 10 is, is making sure you don't do that. Do you want to come in, Mark? And then I'm going to open up to questions. So be thinking of what you want yeah, to Yeah, I have no more idea than Ian about what's going to happen. But one thing I am certain of is that whatever happens between now and the 31st of October, after the 31st of October, for the rest of this parliament, and if there's an early election, the next parliament is going to be completely dominated by Brexit still and the future relationship with the European Union. And although Katie's absolutely right, it's important for a government to have other agenda and drive that forward, I think it will be exceptionally difficult to do so because the fallout of the Brexit and the implications in the different areas and the firefighting and the economy, etc., is going to absolutely dominate the next Prime Minister's uh, life, well, perhaps interspersed with the odd international crisis. On no. just, sorry, sorry, just fun, <laughs> because the, the PM's diary, having had a career mm. largely in the, in the Foreign Office, it is, you're absolutely right, deep frustration um, that the <laughs> Prime Minister isn't available to see the President of Uzbekistan <laughs> or whoever who happens to be coming through. And, and it, but it opens up a wider mm. issue, which mm. is not for today, which is actually having a Prime Ministerial system rather than a presidential system is a big handicap when it comes to foreign policy and security policy. I leave it there. Now, we have some waving mics. If you're next door, then just stick your head through the door if you would like to ask a question. I'm going to take them in groups of three. Um, so can I start with you, Thank you very much. It's Masato Kimura, Japanese journalist. Uh, my question is, uh, what do you think the next very British revolution and uh, next is, uh, in no, no, no speech, Margaret Thatcher showed very strong idea to stick to sovereign state. What do you expect of sovereignism or sovereignty uh, should be in uh, the 21st centuries for next prime minister? Okay, and if you can just pass back to this gentleman. Could you say who you are? Sorry. David Haney, uh, House of Lords. Um, this question is not uh, ad personam, but uh, could the panel just comment on the proposition that special political advisers' influence has increased, is increasing, and ought to be diminished? And there's just a gentleman in the front row. Alex Chesson, Department of Business. Um, my question was really about the, uh, the physical demands of the job of being Prime Minister. You described a little bit the diary there. It'd be great to hear a bit more from, um, I suppose, Kate, uh, particularly having worked very close to the Prime Minister, but also other members of the panel and Jill too, what, um, what the working day looks like, uh, what the working weekend looks like, um, uh, the physical demands, the job, also the mental resilience required of these incredible pressures, and any uh, techniques that uh, <laughs> could help manage that. You're fine, Alex. Okay, so we've got, uh, does mindfulness help? Um, <laughs> the role of SPADS and um, the next British Revolution. Who would like to go first? Shall I, shall I, shall I start with that, Alex's question? Yep. I mean, I think um, you know, it, it's, it's a huge job, it's very demanding, and having the right temperament um, helps a lot 
it, I mean, David Cameron was very grounded in um, ha having a close family, living upstairs, um, a good mind. Um, he got up early, he did his box for two hours, he went for a run. Um, he, he, uh, uh, there was a reputation um, that he was a chillax prime minister, <laughs> that he didn't work hard unless disaster hit, which I didn't recognise at all. But he, he was good at working very hard and then, you know, playing the game of tennis, making the porridge for the children. Um, he, 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 you know, watch, he liked watching TV very late at night. But he, he always got through his red boxes. Um, but he liked to have time to think, you know, if there was a crisis, he would be walking around the garden tending his vegetable patch because that's when he would be <laughs> thinking, how do I deal with it? So um, my answer is I think you need to make sure that you have space to think, space to yourself, time. Um, I, I would say whatever it is that grounds you, for him it was his family, um, so that you are able, and let's face it, the most huge decisions you have to make as Prime Minister, including some of them with, with the man sitting next to me and some of them involving people's lives. It's an incredibly intense job. And if you're all, all the time in it nervous and changing the diary and not seeing people and only focused on the firefighting and not thinking more long term and taking the time, then you're not going to be the best you can be. <laughs> Do you want to answer Lord Hannay's question about spam? Oh, yes. <laughs> well, I, that's a view I don't actually share. I think it's true that if you go back to um, the, the, the days of Margaret Thatcher, the Charles, Charles Power was, in a sense, everything, wasn't he? I mean, I think government's become complex. It's become a 24-7 media machine. You can want to ignore that, love to ignore it, wish it didn't exist, but it does exist. Um, I think you need to keep a check on it. You don't want them, you, you don't want millions and millions, we try to keep a quota, but I think on the whole, if you th in our day, we had, most ministers had two spads. They had one person who was sort of covering the policy stuff and the other doing the media. And those people were the people dealing with the, with the politics up against, you know, clever people like <laughs> Ian. So I, mean, I, I think that it's just, life is more complex now. It's more, it's more personalised, it's more politicised, so I would, I would disagree. Yeah, I mean, most special advisors will complain at the end of a long day when they're having a drink with you, they'll complain that they have very little influence <laughs> and that civil servants have all the influence. Um, I think it's, th there's a balance. Again, there's a tendency for special advisors now to be too young and I just think it, I, mean, I know it's, a problem, it's problematic with the salary structure, but um, I think bringing in people who have done other stuff in industry and bringing in people in their 40s and 50s and older might balance things up a bit more because it's just a tendency that, that people come straight out of CCHQ or a, a press office job there, go on to the SPAD run and, and then are in government. There's maybe a bit too much of that. On what is the next British revolution, um, well, I think we're living it. It's yeah. Brexit. And the question is whether there is a counter-revolution. I don't think anyone knows the answer to this question. Our politics is being remade, similar to what happened 100 years ago with the Liberals. And then politics was remade along class lines and you had the emergence or the triumph of the Labour Party representing the interests of one class. And politics seems to be splitting now along a different uh, set of lines which is to do with values and sort of liberal, liberal analysis against an anti-liberal analysis. And 
don't know which political party is going to manage to um, manage to sort of square all those various circles. You would have thought without Brexit, Boris Johnson's a kind of politician who potentially might might do it, but it is going to get very, very messy. So if you like revolutions, stick around. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of stories. Jill? Um, I take, uh, take uh, David's point on special advisors. I think it's very interesting. <coughs> Obviously, the place in number 10 that you bring in most people as advisors, with the exception of the chief of staff role and potentially uh, a more political press spokesman, that was clearly a change between the sort of major and Blair regimes, people like Alastair Campbell, Jonathan Powell coming in. Is it in the number 10 policy unit? Um, I have to say, I thought, this is personal, I found the number 10 policy unit a really awkward place to work as a civil servant. I thought you shouldn't actually be there if you're a civil servant. And I made a very deliberate decision that if it was an inappropriate place to work between uh, mid-92 and 94, I certainly didn't want to be there in the run-up to an election. Because I was quite prepared, as, uh, as Mark said, as a civil servant for a, someone political to give me a steer on what to do and then bounce off and try to do it. I mean, that you know, is what I'd signed up for. Uh, the sort of sitting around number 10 policy unit conversations about how on earth do we win this group of voters back? Um, I would sort of sit around and think, do I do that? Now, I was given the sort of brief of the issues the Prime Minister wasn't interested in, um, which was a bit of a conversation because the you know, very political briefs went to the more political people. So I did things like environment and health that actually John Major didn't have big agendas for uh, as a result of that. But I actually think that good special advisors are a brilliant part of the system, emphasize good. Those are civil servants, those are special advisors who actually have good judgment about what the Prime Minister wants rather than the tendency that I think you sometimes get in people because you know you can send it out from the number 10 email address or on the number 10 headed note paper uh, to insert their views or the Prime Minister's views, which I don't think helps anyone. Usually Whitehall knows that and treats it with the disdain it deserves. Sometimes they take a bit of time to wake up to the fact that you're running a personal agenda and all the Prime Minister has done is tick you know, where you've written, is this all all right? And they write, okay, I, I can't be bothered to look at it, just get on on what you do. And then down the line, it becomes a problem. They need to make sure that they don't filter out inconvenient advice on the grounds that the Prime Minister, Prime Minister shouldn't hear it. Some of the worst meetings I ever went to when I was at number 10 were when things weren't going very well John Major, we were told we had to go and cheer him up um, by saying how well everything was doing from uh, the head of the policy unit. And every day I think knew we were playing a game. And that, I think, goes to my answer to Alex. It's this question about physical demands versus mental demands. I mean, yeah, you can see the physical demands just by looking at the, looking at the Prime Minister. I mean, she has borne an amazing burden. And I, you know, I don't know how she does it. I genuinely don't know how she has withstood uh, the demands on her over the last, uh, last year and a half, and it's pretty amazing. I think one of the things that really, I've just been watching the Thatcher documentaries on TV, one of the things there is said that strength of Margaret Thatcher was she didn't want to be liked. And I think having a prime minister who is desperately keen to be liked every day makes it a horrendous job because there are loads and loads of people out there whose job in life is not to be saying the Prime Minister's doing an absolutely terrific job, did it yesterday and will do it again tomorrow. And being, having the mental toughness to withstand 
that and the sort of confidence, not to sort of ignore all criticism and stuff, because you might learn something from it, but to actually be able to take it on board and just think, how do I need to adapt, what's useful, but not take everything as a personal insult and not be paranoid about your colleagues, which is another thing that you can see if the Prime Minister feels that they're a bit embattled, can start thinking they're all plotting against me all the time. They probably are. They want to be Prime Minister, <laughs> they're pretty close to. But you have to not let that get to you. And I think those are the attributes, I would say. Mark, did you want to answer any of this? I think David's yeah. right. Of course, the, the role and the power of SPADs has increased over the years. There's no question of that. I, for me, the bigger issue, though, is the risk of politicization of the senior parts of the civil service. Um, and when that starts to happen, I think that's very damaging. The impartial civil service is one of the big advantages we have over somewhere like France, or indeed many other European countries, or America, um, where everyone gets cleared out of the civil service when there's a change of, uh, change of executive regime. Um, and it's really important that permanent secretaries, the cabinet secretary, are independent and are respected for the impartial advice that they give to the prime minister and ministers. And that may become an issue if there was a change of government, say if Jeremy Corbyn led government, you know, hostile suspicion of the civil service. So I think that is, to me, the bigger risk than the physical number of uh, uh, special advisors. I think the question on the revolution is, is very interesting. We're not a country that goes in for revolutions. Um, we're certainly going through a very turbulent uh, period uh, at the moment. But I think underlying your question is, that is the role of, of government and against and sovereignty of executive power. And I think this has undergone a big change right across the world. And when you think that the nation state is now under threat in a way that it's not been before, from a combination of regionalization, from localization, from multinational corporations, from the internet, from uh, religion, the, the decision-making body of international governance is beginning to break up um, because power is flowing away from central government in every country in the world. And that, I think, is a very interesting revolution we're seeing in governance. Okay, I will take another three questions. So, uh, on the line there, and then you go Andrew Kennan, I used to be a clerk in the House of Commons. We've seen experiments over the years with uh, prime ministers trying to delegate to deputy prime ministers or to chancellors of the exchequer. Do you think there is any scope for trying again a more chairman, chief executive model? I'm James Kidner from Improbable, a technology firm, but on leave from the Foreign Office there. Um, fascinating discussion, and thank you, everyone. I, I wanted to pick up, your, you, you talked earlier about the importance of trust in number 10, and, the, uh, and what are the sort of trade-offs that need to be made by a clever prime minister in order to sustain that balance between the sort of loyalty of those who are closest to them with the trust of people further away? And, and picking up the point that, that Ian made about the change that in political sort of uh, fault lines between uh, values, uh, the increasing importance of values, and with a civil service, that's going to make the impartiality that Sir Mark was calling out much harder. So how do you keep this layer of trust when you've got these very challenging, um, sort of very challenging new environment in which it's having to be built? Alexander Downer from King's College, London. 
I um, have been listening with great interest to what you've all been saying. I was involved in government myself <laughs> at one stage. Um, and I wonder if you could say a little bit, though, about something different that a Prime Minister must have, and that is authority. And from where does a Prime Minister derive her or his authority? Now, you're talking a lot about the relationship between a Prime Minister and the civil service <coughs> and the government, but could you say a little bit about um, the relationship be between the Prime Minister and her or his cabinet colleagues and the Prime Minister and the parliamentary party and above all the Prime Minister and the people, the country. Um, and do you think that a Prime Minister is likely to fail if she or he is not capable of maintaining authority over the Cabinet <laughs> through um, the relationship with the public? It's a brilliant, brilliant question. Um, I mean, in terms of the authority of the Prime Minister at Westminster in and around Portcullis House and around the Chamber, um, I think it's, and I don't want to be unnecessarily uh, rude or critical about um, the Prime Minister, uh, Theresa May, who's, who's leaving now uh, and clearly has done, has worked very hard and done her best, but hasn't worked. However, the thing I would observe watching it as a journalist is that you know when power is in the room, someone with authority is in the room. So if you're sitting in Portcullis House having a coffee as a journalist waiting for a passing train, um, <laughs> the, when Gordon Brown, and it's usually the power walk, Cameron used to do the power walk as well, which is to walk about 30% faster than all of your aides, which makes them sort of hurry along afterwards. And it just says, I know where I'm going. That's the power walk. Brown would do it. And you just, you just said, there goes power. Um, and you d never really had that feeling with Theresa May. Even when she was in her pomp early on, it felt to me artificial, as though her aides were trying to cover up the fact that she lacked a lot of confidence, which I think is maybe, maybe the root of it. In terms of the country, it's, I mean, you're posing a question there which uh, people have wrestled with for thousands of years. <laughs> and Shakespeare wrestled with, and wh why is it that we believe in that someone has authority and, and deserves power and another person doesn't? The curious thing about the modern era, and Gordon Brown used to talk about his seven-year rule, which is a really good rule, which is that it's only about seven years that the public watching the television will take someone being the main figure telling them what's going on and laying down the law. And after about seven years, and it works pretty much. Works for Thatcher, works for Blair and Blair, Blair in power, um, uh, and probably works for Cameron as well. Curious thing about Boris. Not so much in China. I was going to say. Not so much, not so much I think it's twelve months in Australia. I was. I was. I was. Yeah. I was assuming we were talking about democracy, <laughs> <laughs> uh, where people actually get to where people get to vote. But the curious thing about Boris is. He's been around forever. He's been famous, notorious, infamous mm -hmm. since about 2004, 2005 when he was fired. Was that when he was but fired he, as was was he Did he have authority for all that time? And I think <laughs> not necessarily. I mean, I, I think it's a very interesting question. I mean, I, um, I would say, you know, elections help. Mm. Um, you know, in the end, um, David Cameron 
almost won the first election, but he, he, he won an extra 98 seats that first time. So it was a, a good result by anyone's um, view. And the second time, he won. Um, and sometimes, painfully, so people, you know, they ask me lots of things about what happened, um, quite understandably. And one of the things they say is, you know, why didn't David Cameron stay on after he lost the referendum? And he left the country in the lurch, you know, he should have... Um, and one of the things I say to you is exactly to your point about authority, which is David Cameron staying in number 10, whether if he, even if he'd wanted to, he had lost his authority with the party, with the country. It's, it would have been like a prime minister staying, having lost an election, sort of Shakespearean style. So, um, and I think that one of the challenges we've seen recently with these internal elections for leader, prime minister, mm -hmm. Uh, is that it is a very big challenge being elected in the way that we're seeing, not, and then having the authority not just over your, your peers around the cabinet table at your parliamentary party, which, by the way, you know, we do not have a majority, um, and that is something that we haven't touched on possibly enough. That it's a driving force of, of this whole problem. Um, and also, you know, they haven't been challenged in, in, a, in a general election. In fact, I, I seem to remember you were very wisely mm. said um, to me, you thought that um, it was a risky business having an early election, and <laughs> you were very right. <laughs> <laughs> Mark, do you want to come in uh, on the, uh, maybe Andrew's well, question about yeah, the... On the DPM, yeah. I will come in on that, yeah. but I just want to say, talk about a little bit about external mm. authority too, to Alexander's uh, mm. point, because certainly seen from uh, someone who's represented the country overseas for their career, um, what you want from a prime minister, what gives them authority when they go to the G20 or the UN or the G7, wherever it happens to be, is A, a strong political base at home, mm -hmm. that is understood by colleagues who know that you're there and you've got a, a strong uh, political base, and secondly, a strong economy. That's what you're representing. Economy and you represent your own strong political position. And if you've been there for a few years, then of course your authority goes up. If you don't have either of those things, it doesn't matter what country you're representing. I mean, America's a bit of an exception, maybe, but you know your authority is going to be that much uh, less. I mean, personally, I quite like the idea of deputy prime ministers and the theory, at least, of a chairman of the board. I just don't think it is realistic in today's British political space. Um, it perhaps worked quite well in London, and people say that you know Boris was the front man and, and set the vision and did the presentation, and he had hired all these excellent people around him and did the. You just can't do that, I think, as prime minister anymore. The personalisation of the job has become very great, as I mentioned earlier, and the number of decisions that that get sucked into the centre for good or bad reasons means that you cannot avoid being in the spotlight, and you have to go to Parliament every week uh, to etc. So uh, it, it's a nice idea and I think you can do something like the uh, David Cameron, George Osborne duo. He was Deputy Prime Minister mm -hmm. in all but, but name and they worked very closely together. I think that, that can work well and I would hope that whoever does become Prime Minister does think about that. But I think Chairman of the Board, no, that sort of hands-off approach simply isn't realistic now. Joe, do you want to answer Alex's question about trust and impartiality? James's question about trusting. I'm not sure I quite yes. understood the question Sorry. actually. So, um, so I was a bit slight weak ground. So, James, do you, um, do you want to explain it a bit more? How do you build trust? It's an important team that holds the numbers end together. 
Well, I think, we, I, th I think actually there's quite a natural force. Once you're in number 10, number 10 is very <coughs> small. And I think that's quite important. The sort of physical geography of number 10 means you do feel quite bound in just by dint of being there. And it always feels quite special going to work through the front door and things like that. So there's quite a big force that makes you want to feel loyal. One of the things that we found quite frustrating when I was in the policy unit, I don't know how it's evolved, was... Um, was how little access we got to the Prime Minister. And we also worked for somebody who didn't come from bureaucratic tradition, she's a journalist, and she didn't share what she, her conversations with the Prime Minister, you've got those as sort of privileged information, and having come from bureaucracy, you're sort of quite used to knowing what's going on. Uh, and she wouldn't even show us her advice to the Prime Minister. So we didn't actually know what she was advising the Prime Minister, and that, uh, that's quite weird, I think. Uh, coming from the Treasury, uh, I thought that was quite weird. So I think there are things you can do to build that trust, make people feel included, make them feel important parts of it. But I think you start with a huge running advantage just from, just from that. I was just going to say, on the Deputy Prime Minister point, I actually think it is enormously helpful for the Prime Minister to have somebody who can actually do quite a lot of the heavy, difficult lifting for them on some of the agenda. Um, doesn't have to be a very high profile person, might be a very good use of a Lord. Um, you know, John Major had Lord Wakeham, Margaret Thatcher famously had Willie Whitelaw, who could actually chair a lot of things, knock heads together. So not every interministerial dispute has to come to the Prime Minister, because the Prime Minister, and this goes a bit to Alexander's point about capital, is the Prime Minister's got you know, political capital, they don't be wasting it on resolving lots of sort of slightly second order interministerial wrangles that you know you need somebody else who can do lots of that and you just come in at the end. I think the real test interestingly for a new Prime Minister whether they have any degree of authority is we have seen the most ill-disciplined breakdown in collective responsibility in the UK government over the last couple of years that I've ever witnessed, Mark's probably ever witnessed or whatever. I think it's going to be a really interesting early acid test of whether the Prime Minister at a minimum, has authority over their uh, cabinet. That A, they can do the reshuffle they want, as opposed to the reshuffle that the people taking part uh, co-design with them, which was an interesting Theresa May innovation. And B, whether they actually have a cabinet that appears to sort of slightly sh shut up and put up and doesn't go out and brief every dispute immediately thereafter, Ian Hayes That's true. Boring though it's going to be for all, all of you. Great for trade, but the, if not the trade of the country, certainly great for journalistic trade. But it is, um, I think that having criticised, having expressed concern about some aspects of Boris's approach, um, and we're really just all in, all in the dark mm. about it, he does start with a major advantage, which is that expectations are really pretty low, and he is extremely competitive. So, for behind all the bluster, he will be determined not to fail. And you can see in the way that he's being, I think, being too disciplined in the leadership race, but the way in which, I mean, he was really pretty mm -hmm. controlled in the debate last night, and he has developed a leadership shtick, clearly taught to him and practiced. But he will not want to go into number 10, and within 10, week, uh, within 10 days or fortnight, people are saying, this is a complete shambles. He can't actually, he can't do the job. That would be fatal from 
the start. So I, th I think he'll, he'll be determined to prove everyone wrong. Can I just add on on your circle of trust and just back on? I mean, I think there is a balance between um, trusting a group of people, uh, which is really about shutting the door and having a proper discussion mm. about a difficult issue and finding that it's not written up in the newspaper. And also having a number 10, which is bunker-like, doesn't listen to ideas, doesn't talk to their MPs. And I mean, I think that a, a really well-managed, I mean, I'm not saying we got it right all the time, we absolutely didn't, but on the whole, you need to try to do both. You need to try to be able to know you can make those decisions and also that you keep the flow of ideas, you, you keep talking to people. Um, and the other thing I'd just say, I mean, I, I hope all of that is true and, I, and I'm know, please can you say it? Um, I mean, my, my only concern is the actual, we all know the difficulties around Brexit. We know the challenge of, you know, maybe Brussels will give a tiny bit more, we don't know. Um, maybe it won't be massively dramatic. The numbers in Parliament, all of that is very difficult. And I think the concern when you watch a debate like last night is that obviously people are trying to get elected. Um, they're being careful of what they say. But it is very difficult to go from that straight into real life, real problem, and not lead to disappointment quite early on in the premiership. And that, that to me, is what worries me about the next few it's months. A, it's a brilliant point, because usually you, you say when a, a prime minister or a leader is uh, being appointed, listen, eventually someone's going to be disappointed. But you're usually talking at this point yes. within four years, not exactly. four weeks. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> We've just got a few minutes left, and I just want to uh, give each of the panellists a, a, a chance to say anything they, they haven't managed to say yet. we just take a couple more questions from the audience, and then I've got one more myself. Uh, Robert Morland, I'm a former member of the European Parliament. Um, and the two words I would like to ask you about are, are tenacity and patience. <laughs> Because if I contrast Mrs. Thatcher, and I was in the European Parliament during her time, and David Cameron, I would make a big difference in that Mrs. Thatcher was over the net contribution issue, which I had to go through, um, very patient and tenacious. She never gave up. It struck me with David Cameron at the end, particularly over the point of renegotiations before we went to the referendum, uh, he was not patient. Um, he shot from the hip. Um, he was not as tenacious as was really needed. I mean, we spent a lot of time on the city issue, which out there was pretty meaningless. Very little time on the migration issue, which he raised, but he was very keen to have a, an election in June. And I think you actually do have to have the qualities of patience and tenaciousness we could reflect on which of the candidates we think best this demonstrates those. Uh, one more question. Uh, anyone else? Gentleman. Hi, uh, Tom Wade, uh, work at the Department for Business. Um, you've touched on um, temperament during the discussion, and I was listening to quite an interesting discussion between uh, David Liddington and Nick Robinson on how important he thought temperament was in a Prime Minister, not just in the cliched sense of sort of letters of last resort or nuclear codes but more immediate decisions that he's had to watch Theresa May and Deborah Cameron take in Cobra meetings and in um, crises for example. Do you think temperament is something that could be properly tested in someone 
before they become prime minister? Was it more a case of, you know, cometh the hour, cometh the prime minister when they were actually in that position? So two very closely related questions there. And I just, uh, I don't think we've got time to do another one because I'm going to squeeze mine in, which is I'd just like to uh, ask the panel what, what one piece of advice they would give to the incoming prime minister. Um, so if we could tackle all three, uh, because we need to wrap up and let people get away. Um, who wants to make a start? My advice would be sort out Brexit. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> really straightforward. Um, just on the, on the, uh, the Cameron uh, temperament point, it was, for people writing about this, it was, it was frustrating, but I can see why he did it the way that he did, because he was in a, he was in, uh, he had, in the years when he might have started to make the case for renegotiation, he was in a coalition arrangement where, for understandable reasons, he didn't really want to bang on about Europe. So you could make the case that around the time of the Eurozone crisis was the time to start, he, this was three or four years' work, setting up some kind of European reform movement. Might have worked, might, um, might not. Boris, in terms of temperament, Boris is just, one of the reasons that the Tories are choosing him is that, and I separate here what he might be like behind the scenes inside number 10, but in, the, in terms of the public arena, they're choosing him because he is transgressive and potentially explosive. And they hope, being trapped in this Brexit mm -hmm. situation, that it can somehow conjure up some magic or a concession or um, a mistake by Macron or just something that, that opens up the situation in a Trumpian, in a Trumpian way. What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> Jill? Um, they're very good questions. I think uh, it's very interesting. I mean, prime ministers are good at some things and less good at other things. And, you know, some are good negotiators, some are things like that. So I think be aware of what you're good at and, uh, and think about how you're going to manage the things that you might not be quite so good at. The one bit I would say is we've talked about all the pressures on time and things like that and the extreme overload that you have to manage. But I think one of the important things for prime ministers is to take time to invest in some relationships. Um, even working for Secretary of State is sometimes quite different. different while, while we were still EU members to get them to actually invest in bothering to go to informal meetings and things like that, where they could actually build personal connections with some of the people. And in those crises and those things, you may need to call on those things who you might be asking to do something a bit, bit harder for them and stuff like that. So I think it's just worth making sure that you've actually uh, built some of those personal relationships with, uh, with people and also with some of the people who may uh, you know, seem a bit insignificant members of your team that you might ultimately depend on. So and it's just worth thinking about the people that you're going to be asking extraordinary things of at some point during your premiership. Yeah, I, I, the Prime Minister needs a whole series of very difficult uh, characteristics, I, but I don't think there's a single style of leadership. Um, leaders can be different guises, and I wouldn't say there's a single way to be Prime Minister uh, uh, of the country. But I think what you have seen historically is sort of a swing of the pendulum. So, you know, you move from uh, a Margaret Thatcher to a, to a John Major, if you like, or from a Tony Blair to a Gordon Brown, or from a uh, David Cameron to a Theresa May, and the, the risk e each time is the pendulum swings too far, and that's exactly what might happen this time from, you know, Theresa May to someone to someone completely different from Theresa May. But I wouldn't want to say you must have this characteristic and mm. that characteristic. There are different styles of, of doing um, the job. Um, 
One bit of advice, I would just say don't rush into institutional governance changes. I think a lot are necessary. Um, I think we've fractured some of the governance arrangements in the country that need to be changed, but that is a job for after a general election. You know, focus on the immediate, and the immediate is going to be Brexit, and that immediate is going to last quite a long time, as I said earlier. Yeah, so on the, on the um, negotiation, um, I think David Cameron was trying to build on the special status that we had as a nation with, with Europe. We already had opt-outs and we weren't in the euro and, he, and I think he did a very good job with the negotiation. I think migration, the whole area of migration was very difficult. It was a sticking point. Um, he did want and feel he should get more and it was, um, and he didn't. Um, if he'd stayed longer and pressed harder, I don't know, years on, we still have this as a problem. The, the, the four freedoms in the European Union are like a religion for the European Union. And that is just a very difficult point. Of, in a sense, it's a culture clash between us and them. In terms of temperament, I mean, what I'd say is, you mentioned Cobra, I think one of the a key things for Cobra isn't just the you know, the, the moment when you make those big and difficult decisions, but it's actually sitting down, going through minute details, action points, and heads together. And by the way, you're coming back this evening, and I'm going to go down each action point. E.g., actually, a lot of that sort of government is also making sure the detail is done and everyone knows what they're doing. Um, in terms of advice, um, just, just remember that the Prime Minister is a leader for the whole country. It's a very polarised time. Um, and on a more political point, I would simply say, um, I hope my own party doesn't <coughs> forget that there are more votes, in my view, in the centre than there are um, necessarily going too far off trying to worry about what's going on at the moment. And I, I just hope that whoever's the next Prime Minister does remember that it's a difficult time, that they can try and build some sort of unified tolerance and respect in the <laughs> public discourse, which has been lacking a bit recently. Okay, so focus on the immediate, sort out Brexit, <laughs> while leading for the whole country and building your personal relationships. And that should be pretty straightforward. <laughs> I hope you'll thank me in th uh, join me in thanking our excellent panel for what I think has been a really interesting discussion. And thank you again for coming today. Thank you.